0: everyone and welcome to the cyberwires research saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us.
1: So, it started from the observation that that goes back 10-15 years that malware, when executed on different hosts or, in, or also on the same host but at different times, it sometimes changes, changes behavior.
0: That's Tudor Dimitris. He's a professor and researcher at the University of Maryland and the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. The research we're discussing today is titled When Malware Changed Its Mind An Empirical Study of Variable Program Behaviors in the Real World. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before team cymru be the hunter not the hunted learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire that's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire
1: This is something that I've wanted to do for, for a long time, but only recently I was able to, I was able to uh, collect uh, in collaboration with a, an industry partner, collect a large enough data set in order to, to analyze this. And this is important to understand because malware researchers typically collect execution traces in a sandbox, so that's, that's a controlled lab environment. And they do this to understand what the malware does, to to analyze the malware, to figure out if it belongs to a known family, uh, and also to create detection signatures, behavior-based detector signatures. The problem is that when malware can do different things on on different hosts, this will affect the the effectiveness of of, of the conclusions of the malware analysis and and the effectiveness of the signatures created for, for detection. Some people call them split personalities. So when, when mm-hmm. malware does different things on different hosts, they are often implemented by the malware authors with intention to evade sandboxes. So, so to not perform the malicious behavior in the sandbox. And uh, we, we just wanted to understand this. Um, there hadn't really been a large scale measurement of just how much behavior, this behavior changes in the real world what exactly, what components of the behavior are more likely to change? What, you know, how does malware change versus benign? And how does this uh, affect malware detection and, and malware analysis? In this research, uh, in this paper, we worked with a partner to analyze a data set that was recorded on five and a half uh, million real hosts uh, out there that uh, included multiple executions for each sample, uh, mul- multiple traces for each sample.
0: Well, let's walk through the methodology together. I mean, at, at the outset, how did you all decide to come at this? When you got uh, malware that you suspect is uh, trying to avoid you taking a closer look at it, where do you begin?
1: Right. so this is uh, this is the core of the matter. When you know that malware is likely to to evade, you know, has the intention and the incentive to to evade detection and analysis. You know how do you go about selecting you know a sample that is that is representative and and really the only way to do this is to to look at what happens on on real hosts, which is also what what makes this this difficult to do but we worked with an industry partner which um has an antivirus product that that runs on end hosts it collects execution traces it's it monitors for a little while what what the malware is is trying to do and Collects these things in order to uh, to perform further analysis to 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 try to figure out how these things actually happen in the in in, in the um, real world. So it's important to understand that this is only done as a last line of defense. So if they can detect the malware through any other means, any other engine they would just detect it. They would not let it run at all. And, and similarly, if, if something is clearly benign or is known to be benign, they, they would not do anything to it. They would exonerate it. But there is always a gray area, a, a set of binaries that they are suspicious, but, but still you, you cannot be completely certain. So they, they execute it. And they also stop the execution as soon as the malware tries to, tries to do something nasty, as, as soon as it becomes clear that that something bad is happening. But a lot of the initial uh, setup and uh, initial behaviors of, of, of the malware are recorded. And this gives us a wealth of, of data to, to look at, uh, in particular, the differences uh, of, in behavior between different hosts of the same, the same malware sample. And because this is actually, we never tried to distribute the malware to, to the host. We never tried to do this in a lab. This is in the real world. And these are actual hosts that are under attack from from the malware. So this is what gives us some confidence that these results are representative.
0: Well, can you take us through some examples here of the the types of things you were looking for and and some of the conclusions you were able to make?
1: Let me give you one example. So the Ramnit worm, for example, is a well-known piece of malware. And um, in the particular variant that we had in, a, in our data set, it tries to exploit a, uh, a vulnerability. It's an older vulnerability, CWE20133660. Uh, and it does this in order to gain privilege escalation on, on Windows 7 in particular. When it launches this exploit, what you see in the execution trace is that it creates hundreds of mutexes until, until the exploit succeeds. And this is part of the exploit execution process. But the worm is smart, so it, it tries to profile the target. So if it figures out that the, the target does not include the vulnerability or it's already running in admin mode, so, so it doesn't need to do privilege escalation, it doesn't launch the exploit. So hmm. should an analyst run this malware in a sandbox, they would only observe one of these behaviors, depending on you know what the environment was. In general... If you look at executions on different hosts or even on the same host, but you know maybe a few weeks later or a few months later, you, you may see different, different behaviors. So malware performing different registry operations, making different or additional or removing certain API calls, or in, in some cases exiting without doing anything. So, so like I said, the, the existence of these split personalities was known. And uh, researchers and, and practitioners also uh, developed methods to, to try to um, discover the, the existence of these uh, this, this evasive behaviors in, in, in malware samples, but it was never measured at scale in the wild before. So, hmm. and because of that, it, it is hard to tell what impact does this really have on the way we do malware analysis and malware detection. Hmm.
0: Now you all were able to gather again, as you mentioned, with your part, your industry partners, quite a data set here. Can you describe to us, you know, how how big was it? How did you go about gathering it, and having that large a data set? What does that provide for you as a researcher?
1: Absolutely. So the data set, as I as I mentioned, comes from a collaboration that we had with an industry partner. I, I personally, my background is in is in the industry. I I used to work at. Semantic Research Labs before I became an academic. Uh, so back in the day when, when Symantec was the largest uh, security vendor. And uh, I really like to work with folks in the industry to understand what the biggest problems they are that they are facing and also to help them with large data analysis projects like, like this one. So the data set was collected on 5.4 million real hosts, and it includes multiple execution traces for for the same sample, so I think in total we have about seven and a half uh, million execution traces hmm. In some cases, we have hundreds of execution traces per per sample and what these traces are is they come from an um, API traces, so these are these are windows malware that that perform API calls in order to download files to connect to the, the internet to set certain registry entries or mutexes. So we, uh, we recorded the actions that the malware was trying to perform. So for example, when the malware is trying to create a new file, as for example, Ransomware would, would do. And each of these actions has a certain parameter, right? So for example, the file name or, or the registry path that being, being accessed. We have collected this data set. We parsed it into these actions and and parameters. So for each execution, each execution is, is is attributed to the process ID that 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 triggered it, including things like thread injection and uh and launching new processes. So we can we can figure out what was the 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 executable that started started all of this. So then we look at the hash of that executable and then we look at multiple when we have multiple traces of that the same hash we analyze the variability in in their behavior so we do this in a couple of ways we look at how the the, the number of actions and the types of actions differ and also we look at the differences in in the parameters we we try to uh, to break this down into variability that occurs across hosts and also variability that occurs across time and then we also try to see if there are there is something invariant something that doesn't really change between executions that, for example, a malware signature could be based on in order to be reliable, and how many executions you would need to see in order to, to see such a, such a reliable signature. And then we also looked at, we tried to, to conduct sort of an experiment to demonstrate what would happen if you try to draw conclusions from a single execution, that that is typically the way things are done when traces are collected in a, in a sandbox.
0: So what were the results then? I mean, what did you find?
1: So let's start with the behavioral differences themselves. Hmm. So first of all, it is interesting that there are many reasons for these behavioral differences. The researchers previously focused primarily on this sandbox evasion behavior as as a cause of, of behavioral differences, but there are many, many other root causes. There are, for example, differences in operating systems and the libraries available, as in the example that I gave you with with, with the Ramnit worm. We also saw that malware may attempt to perform some risky operations that fail on some hosts. And because of that, the subsequent actions will be different on, on those hosts. Malware may receive different commands from their CNC channel. So then at different points in time, they may do different things or may not do anything at all. We also saw that many of these perform an initial installation. So when you run the malware for the first time, you are likely to see different trace than when you run it the second time and the third time. And that's because the initial installation will perform some some one-time operations, such as setting certain registry keys, for example. Perhaps not very surprisingly, malware often creates very random file names. So the file name itself may differ quite a bit between, from one host to to another. So the interesting thing about this is that even if you are somehow able to catch sandbox evasion and deal with this in a sandbox, the traces will still not reflect the full range of behaviors that you're likely to encounter in the wild, because there are all these additional reasons for variability. And we also saw that that uh benign software also exhibits variability uh, if you think about it, you know a Windows update will perform different operations for each for each update because it receives different things to install and also it will differ from one host to to another because of differences in the patch levels of those hosts. So we see variability in benign software as well. however, malware varies more. And and the variability is significantly higher in terms of the number of actions. And when I say variability, I I mean the delta. So, uh, you know, the fact that one host performs 100 versus uh, one host performs uh, 12 actions, right? So not, not the length of the trace, the variability within the traces of the same sample. So this is what we looked at. The, uh, this this was our main metric that that we measured, the variability, the, the per sample variability. And this very significantly more for, for malware in terms of the number of actions that are performed. And uh, the, the biggest contributor to this are the file creations. So on some hosts, there are many file creations. On some hosts, there are uh, much fewer file creations. So that's across hosts. And if we look across time, the main way that things vary is in missing actions. So some actions that you see at some point, several weeks later, they're not going to be there. In, in many cases, this is because the malware just stops doing anything.
0: This variability, is it inherently risky? In, in other words, the fact that that it has so many options and tries to do many things, does that make it noisier that, and make it, you know, increase the possibility that it will be detected?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think that the variability itself, this is actually one of our, one of the conclusions of of, of our paper, that the variability itself can be a useful signal for detection. And and I don't think, as far as I know, I don't think anybody uses it in in this way right now, but it potentially could be one useful signal for figuring out if something is likely to be malicious or, or, or not. In terms of the danger that this poses to the way we conduct business today in terms of malware analysis and, and, and malware detection, we conducted one experiment in our paper with a malware clustering technique, uh, which is uh, often used to determine if an individual sample belongs to a known family. So companies do this, this clustering in order to, to group samples into, in, into families based on this behavioral similarity. And the assumption here is that if you observe a certain behavior, then all the other behaviors will also fall in, into, the cluster, into the same cluster, the, same, the, the, the cluster of, of the family. Otherwise, you cannot really conclude that it's the same family, right, if the behaviors are, are so different. And this is in fact what we what we observed. So typically when you do clustering, you you use only one trace per sample, and then the resulting clusters, at least the most obvious ones, indicate the the malware families in, in your data set. In in our case, we we use a, a clustering technique that is uh, pretty seminal uh, from I think maybe 10 years ago. We try to do the same thing, but with multiple traces for each sample. And we just threw these in without telling the algorithm that these actually belong to the same sample. So they, they should, they are the same malware. Mm And then what happened was that in 33% of the samples, there was enough variability across these four traces that traces of the same sample ended up in, in different, different clusters. So that's as if Mm -hmm. they, they belong to different, different families. And in fact, 1%, each of the four traces was in a different cluster. This doesn't necessarily mean that clustering is is useless, but this really indicates that you should be very careful when you draw conclusions from experiments conducted with a single trace per sample. Because this kind of behavior of, of samples that end up in, in clustered in different, different clusters, different families, this would not be observed if you only use one sample per, per trace, uh, one trace per sample, sorry. This suggests that the accuracy of these, these, uh, these results that is being reported of, of mapping samples to families through behavioral clustering is really lower than, than previously believed uh, mm-hmm. because of this, this variability. This is just one example, one, one concrete experiment that, that, that I'm telling you about, but this actually has broader implications also for, for malware detection and for, for um, malware analysis. The accuracy of these things is likely to be lower than you might expect if you only look at one, one trace per sample.
0: So, where do you all go next with this? I mean, obviously, you're you know you're partnering with industry, and and they will reap some of the benefits of the things that you found here, no doubt. Are there areas? I mean, has this uh, piqued your curiosity? Is there, is there more to be done?
1: I think there's a lot more to be done. Like I said, I I love working with the industry, and uh, so first of all, the results of our study are are public. We have published our paper in in a leading academic research conference. Uh, The paper is is, is available and we are also available to answer more more questions if anybody is interested. So other than our individual, our particular collaborator that, that, um, that worked with us on this study, the broader implications or the broader sort of conclusions, the bigger picture if you want, are that the... This is something that, that, really, that really should be taken into account when, when doing malware analysis and, and malware detection. These behaviors that you can extract uh, from multiple traces. In general, uh, companies, organizations that have antivirus products or do malware detection in some, on end hosts in, in some form, they tend to collect very similar data to, to the one that we analyzed in this paper. As far as I know, they don't do much with it. But here we try to show, you know, just what could be done with it, what you could learn and how it might affect your bottom line if you don't, uh, if you don't understand how this variability, which is a real thing in the, in the wild, how, how it, how is it likely to, to affect your experimental results? I think in terms of going forward, I, I think one, um, thing that, that I'm really interested in uh, in the bigger picture is that this problem that malware experiments can give a false sense of security. And what I mean by that is that we see a lot of academic papers and industry evaluations discussing new malware detection techniques that often de- report detection rates above 90%. And then invariably this high level of high, high performance is hard to reach in the real world the question is 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 why 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 is that part of the answer is that when these techniques are developed and also tested using traces from a sandbox then they may seem that they work better than they really do right because they don't they don't capture this this broad range of of behaviors that that happen in the wild so this is one reason for this false sense of security but ultimately I would like to to understand the full picture and how much each potential factor there are other factors, of course, that, that contribute to this. And I would like to understand how, how each of this contributes to, you know, this accuracy degradation that, that that folks observe from experiments conducted in the lab to when they deploy their tools in the in the real world.
0: Our thanks to Tudor Demetris from the University of Maryland for joining us. The research is titled When Malware Changed Its Mind: An Empirical Study of Variable Program Behaviors in the Real World. We'll have a link in the show notes. The Cyberwire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Paru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Patrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.